We are starting this morning on a new path together as a church, believing and hoping that God is bringing about new things even now. Many of us know that we need to see new things growing and developing in our lives. We need to see some old things gotten rid of. Are you with me in that? Yeah, God's the one who is constantly bringing into life things that haven't yet existed or bringing back to life those things which have died and which ought to be growing. And today we begin following a path focused on a single image which shows up at the beginning and at the end and at many places in between in the Bible, and it is the image of the garden. And we'll discover together how the gardener, the king, invites us to grow, and my hope and my prayer for all of us is that this would be a season for growth. Would you do this right now? Let yourself, reflecting on your own life, answer this question. Are there places where I need to begin growing again? Are there things that it's time for me to get rid of? How do I want to see God growing me? I really mean for you to ask those questions and then for us to receive God's answer to them here together. In March of 2020, at the very end of that month, my wife Michelle and I were taking a walk through our neighborhood. Do you remember those days? It was the very early time in the pandemic. How uncertain and anxious and stressed we all were. We were walking not only because of all the unknowns with the pandemic, but we were facing a very unwanted change. We had just learned that it was time for us to find a new place to live. The house that we were renting in Summit was being sold. We did not want to leave. Do you know what that's like? Yeah. We were trying to figure out how we were going to find a place to land. And, and as we were walking in the neighborhoods and, and checking out, well, how about that house there? It's for sale. We were discovering that Summit was out of our reach. As we walked through one of the neighborhoods by the middle school where we had thought our kids were going to keep going, we passed a house that had something written uh, on the stairs. And Michelle liked it so much that she took a photo. The kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth. One is nearer God's heart in a garden than anywhere else on earth. Let's find a place where we can plant vegetables. Michelle said that to me. Wherever we end up, can it be somewhere where we have a garden? The way that God provided over the next few months, there are a, a series of miracles that we'll save for another time. But let me just say that God led us to the place where we landed in Bedminster. That's where we live now. And a place where we have an absolutely phenomenal and fantastic garden. Starting in May, we began to spend time in that plot of land, digging, weeding, pulling up, planting, mostly Michelle, but let me pretend I did a lot of work too. <laughs> and I'll tell you right now that there are few places that are as magical as a garden that is well-tended in the late afternoon in July and in August like magic. In May, it was nothing but mud and stickers and weeds everywhere. Two months later, you can't even see over the cucumber vines or the corn. The tomato plants are so rich and full and they smell so good, you don't want to leave at all. 
There are 100 different shades of green. Did you know that? The cucumbers, the kale, this lettuce and that other one, the beans, and then all of the herbs with their different hues. There's red and yellow and orange, tomatoes and peppers, purple cabbages. You can't even believe how red the beet leaves are when the sun shines through them in the late afternoon. And the sounds of the bees. And then as the sun begins to go down and the spring peepers start to peep. And it's, it smells so good, I could never describe it with my words. You'd have to be there to believe how alive and how healthy it all smells. It is amazing and it is like a miracle. And almost every evening, I sat there with Michelle and Nate and Lily and thought, is there any place that is better to be than here? To breathe so easy and to feel so close to God's heart. Like this is what life is supposed to be like. Do you have a place where you find yourself thinking that? This is what life is supposed to be like. Do you? If you do, try to let it come into your heart for a moment. But, but you know that you have to leave the garden and go back out into the world you have to go to the office or to school where there are one million tasks and one million mean people where we're still all divided up against each other and we're wondering, I haven't talked about that subject with them yet, but what if I do? Where people are still getting sick, where people are still wanting to divide up even further from one another and define themselves based on the ideas that they have over against others, even though we're all people. And then the world is filled with tyrants who are evil and cruel in the most despicable ways. We don't even want to think about it or imagine it. And then we look down the road and we think, what's going to happen then? We don't know. And deep down inside, even though we, we have a really hard time coming together, one thing we all agree on is that things aren't right out here in the world, don't we? Maybe you know this, at the heart of the Judeo-Christian vision of this world is the belief that the world as we experience it is not as it should be. Did you know that? When people say, I reject that religious outlook, one thing they don't reject is that, that the world is not right because here's what the story that we're going to consider today has to say. It's not right because we live outside of the place that we were made for. We are spiritual exiles, separated from our true homeland, dislocated, disconnected, and deep down, even though we may not agree on exactly why, we know that feeling that we were made for something which we have lost, don't you think? Do you know that the first conversation in the Bible happens in a garden? In the center of God's creation, the pinnacle and the wonder of everything that God has made, according to the scriptures, the very best is the man and the woman who have been made in God's likeness, the unique bearers of God's image in everything that he's created and very good. They are with him and all that he has made in the paradise of Eden where everything is good and all is ordered and just as it should be. They are in harmony with one another and the world that God gave them, together without anything concealed, naked and unashamed, free in fellowship with their creator, walking with him in the cool of the evening like friends strolling through the garden. Do, do you know the story? Have you ever imagined what it would be like? For me, it speaks in a new way subsequent to spending time in a garden in the evening. 
Everything is theirs. And there's only one exception. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which grows in the center of it all. Listen now. The fruit of that tree and the place where that tree is, both of them belong exclusively to God and not to the people that he made in his image. Because when God is in the center, things are good. But when people get in the center, things go bad. Because when God is the one who decides to judge on what is good and what is evil, then then the world is good. But when people try to take that task on their own, then things go bad. And in this story, sadly, it's a tragic story, things go bad. Because the man and the woman who were made for everything good decide to go to the place that they were not made for, and that ends up in removing them from the place that they were made for. That's the story. Do you hear it? Listen to what happens when the two go to the tree and take the fruit. Let's take our time here. In verse 7 of chapter 3 of Genesis, here's what we read. After they eat. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The moment they eat, they become self-conscious and ashamed of who they are. Prior to taking the fruit, they were fine with who they were. They had no need to hide their true selves from the people around them. But after, now they feel ashamed of the person they see there in the mirror. Do you know that feeling? That's not the only thing that happens. Verse 8 They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They used to run to God when they heard him coming in the evening, but now they run away from him instead. Not only uh, do they have a hard time with themselves and one another, but now subsequent to going to the wrong place, their, their relationship with their creator has been fractured, and from him they hide rather than being comfortable and at ease with him. God asks, what's happened? Have you taken from the tree? Why this change? God asks. The explanation from Adam comes first in verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. What do you hear there? (laughs) Do you hear it? It's her fault and it's your fault for giving me her. Right away. Right away. She stops being his companion and she becomes his problem. And same with God. God stops being the giver of a good gift and instead is the giver of a problem. Do you see how everything is falling apart? Do you see it? Stop for a moment and and think of the world we live in again and hear at the heart of the story with which the Bible opens, the true account of how all of this got going. We learn already that it has to do with going to the wrong place. It's the same with Eve God turns from the blamer, Adam, to Eve, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. Again, it's someone else's fault. No no willingness to take responsibility. Aiming at deflection. And instead of being together in in this joy or this mess, whichever it is, the walls go up, and everybody is against everybody else. Here in the story with which the scriptures begin, we learn that the trouble started in the garden 
where instead of staying where they were meant to be, the man and the woman went to the place that was for God alone. And the consequences were that everything, almost everything falls apart. The story ends with the consequence that captures the heart of the misery that will be from now on for Adam and Eve. Look at verse 23 with me. The Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Paradise Lost. You know that book by Milton? Have you read it? Most of us haven't. It tells the story from an imaginative perspective of what it must have been like to have to leave that garden behind. With the longing that was so great to come back again that God had to put an angelic being that would intimidate and, and frighten so that there's no way to come back. The man and the woman are removed from the place that they were made for. And from now on, they are going to be spiritual exiles cast out of their true homeland. Here is why the world is so chaotic, barren, and thorny. And now I'm talking about the world that we inhabit right now. We have been ejected from paradise, the place that we were made for. And that's why we know deep down inside that the world is not right. That is why there remains in every single one of us a longing to go back to a place which some of us know what that is, but others of us have never had a name for it. We know deep down inside that we're separated and we want to get back. Do you know that longing to return to something that has been lost? Yes or no? We want to get back to the place where things are like they should be. You know, this longing to return to paradise, whether you've acknowledged it or not, it exists without any question in our historical record in a very obvious way. All you need to do is to take a look at the world's oldest maps. Has anyone ever gotten interested in those old maps, you know, the kinds that people hang in their living rooms for decoration? No one else has? You love them? Yeah, do a Google search on cartography and watch what you see. Over and over again, what you see in the early decades and centuries of map making is the cartographers speculating on paper about where the terrestrial location of Eden is. It becomes especially apparent in the long period of European expansion starting in the 11th and 12th century and going all the way through the 17th and 18th century, we see, and it's, it's right there on paper, that over and over again, explorers were spurred on by the thought that maybe we can get back to the paradise that was lost, a promise that ended up shaping global exploration for hundreds of years, not just inside the small church communities, but everywhere that people were exploring. They were driven to find paradise. Do you know this? I didn't know this. You can find it in the writings of Marco Polo and Christopher Columbus even. Picture this. Okay, try to use your imagination. We are in Rome, and we're there with the Pope, and it's the year 1122. Calixtus is the Pope. When there in his court, an emissary from the Indies arrives with an invitation. Come visit the kingdom of Prester John. In his hand, he has a letter that describes all of the details of this lost 
Christian nation, which is ruled by one of the descendants of the three magi who visited Jesus at his birth, Prester John. The letter details all of the wonders that are there in paradise found. The land is extraordinarily wealthy since the river carries gems, gold, and precious stones. It's the river Pishon which flows out of the Garden of Eden. If only you will send your crew to find this place, you will have a share in all the riches that are there. The citizens of the country, the letter claims, are altogether virtuous. No poverty, theft, greed, or vice, no divisions, no deception, no hypocrisy. Only faithful Christians live in the kingdom of Prester John, since upon arrival, pure doctrine is proclaimed to every visitor, and without exception, they immediately convert to Christianity or they drop stone cold dead on the ground instantly. In 12th century Rome, this sounded like a dream. <laughs> I'm not making this up, the letter exists. The kingdom city is surrounded by magical animals. White and red lions and bears, griffins, fawns, phoenix, giants, and cyclopses. Every visitor who drinks three times from the river while fasting will immediately become well, healed of every illness, and remain throughout their entire lives as they were at age 32. <laughs> do you want to sign up? I do. Some of you are like, 32, that's so old. There are some people here who think that. Do you know that? <laughs> Look at this map. In the bottom right corner, in Latin there, it says, description of the empire of Prester John or Ethiopia. It says that in Latin. And like many of the maps that were being made in these days, Prester John's kingdom ap appeared on there. When this map was drawn up, Africa was the best guess for where John's kingdom was. Uh, but it's not the only map. And the letter to Calixticus was not the only letter. In fact, in the decades and, and centuries that followed that first letter, it turns out that this kind of letter appeared to people all over the world who were in positions of power. The king of France got one, the Byzantine emperor, Pope Alexander III. In fact, over those decades which followed, the, the letter was translated into many, many languages, and then the maps were drawn up with all kinds of speculation around where it was. Maybe it was in India. Maybe it was in China. It was even in the, in the Americas for a time. It was always shifting. The thing that was consistent is that the promises were always the same, and that is that paradise can be found, and with that promise, there was an appeal so strong that scholars and explorers and missionaries and treasure hunters went all over the world trying to find what had been lost. Can you see that same thing happening today? Can you? Try here to use your imagination and be creative. Do you think that people are driven to great lengths to find what has been lost by the advertisers who are paid an awful lot to convince us that if only we would find this or that, then paradise would be found again? Do you see it? The confident and wild promises, which if only you get to this place in your career, if only you manage to acquire this much, if only you achieve this level of success, then your deepest longing will be satisfied and all will be well for you. The promises of paradise can be found. You want that, don't you? You were made for it beneath all of our frenzied searches 
There is the same basic longing that every single one of us in here knows, no matter what our religious convictions are. We want to see the mystery and transcendence of our world with our own eyes wide open. That's what we all want. We want peace with creation. Everyone wants that. We want sickness and death to be gone now and forever. We want harmony with one another and justice for all people. We want fellowship with God and and we want to be 32 forever. So we are easily tricked into false expeditions. Now, don't think of the world, but think of yourself for a moment. Can you admit to yourself right now anything about the hopeless searches that you've been on? The promises for Prester John's kingdom that you've chased which have never panned out. Where are you looking for paradise? Uh, It's remarkable to note that not only do we see in the maps this search for paradise and in the letters which still exist promoting Prester John Kingdom that there were people who actually arrived in the locations which he had promised. And we have some of their feedback after getting there. And their reports of what they found when they arrived are universally disappointing. They're like really bad Yelp reviews. (laughs) Here's one from the 13th century. This is from Odoricus of Portanon, one of the monks who went there. We came to the land of Prester John, but not even a hundredth part of what they say about its rich soil and noble countryside is true. No stars. (laughs) Thumbs down. (laughs) The longing to get back is right. And if you feel that longing, do not ignore it. God put that longing in your heart for a reason. The promises, like this one and our 21st century versions, are wrong. Those need to be set aside. Here I'm going to preach for a moment. I'm setting aside the history story, and this is me, Christian the Proclaimer. Only when you meet in fellowship with God again, only when you are welcomed and received by Him spiritually, Only when you acknowledge through your reverence and obedience that he is your Lord. Only when you accept that he has saved you by his gracious determination. Only when in humility and in joy you are found in God's presence. Only because Jesus chose to leave paradise to come and retrieve you and bring you back. Only because of his grace can you finally experience life as you were meant to. Paradise right now. I'm going to let you in on three secrets. And these are meant to illuminate what we've heard about this morning so that they they can be synthesized into something that will carry us forward. First secret, the word paradise is a very old word. You can find it in Akkadian and in ancient Sumerian languages. You can find it in the old Babylonian texts and then eventually in Hebrew. And in every one of those languages, the word means the same thing. Garden. That's what paradise means. It's the word for garden. Second secret. While the Bible's account of creation is unique in many, many ways and has features that make it stand out from all of the other accounts that were prevalent at the time, there is one way in which it is exactly like most other ancient stories from that place 
the ones being told in other religious communities in those early centuries, in the ancient Near East, one element shared by almost all of the stories of these Mesopotamian creation stories is the centrality of a garden with a tree that was there in the center of it that was special. You find it in the Epic of Gilgamesh, in the Babylonian Chronicle of King Enlil-Bani, in the birth legend of Sargon. They differ in many ways, but one common thread is that they all take place around a garden, paradise. Now here's the third secret. One of the ways that this story that we receive here in the scriptures stands out emphatically from the, uh, the rest of them, which is stunningly unique, is that in all of the Babylonian myths, the king or the god is also the gardener. Sit on this for a moment. The garden is around the temple or the, the royal dwelling. It's, it's built around there. And the one who is at work in the garden in all of those stories is the god not some hired hand to work in the garden while the king sits on his throne. Instead, the king is the gardener. And the difference here is that in the story which Scripture tells, in a unique way, the Bible tells us that the ones who are invited to be the gardeners are you and me. God gave the human beings he made in his image the job of the gardener. Here, it's plain if you look back in Genesis to verse 15 in the second chapter. Look, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. God put Adam in the garden to take care of it. To prepare the soil for planting, removing the stones and the weeds, adding the nutrients and compost required for growth, making sure that the plants have water and adequate sunlight, protecting them from pests, trimming and pruning along the way, and day by day, working slowly and steadily at cultivating the earth so that good things will grow and the land becomes a delightful place to be in. And God did this because the best thing that anyone can aspire to in a world like ours is to be at work, laboring steadily to cultivate life in the presence of God. Let that sink in for a minute. The thing you were made for is to slowly and steadily be at work in the tasks that cultivate relationships, people, tasks in this world that we've been given to be in in such a way that when we do that, we are in the presence of the king, the gardener, who has invited us with all of the dignity that comes along with it to be at work with him, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, in bringing about good growth. Look at your own life a moment again and consider this. You were created to be a cultivator in God's garden. And maybe one of the reasons that things are such a mess in this world is that most of us have been spending very little time at work in the garden. Ask this question of yourself. Wherever you are in faith, ask this question. Where am I being called right now to do some cultivating? If you are a follower of Jesus, trust me, he is inviting you right now to reconsider uh, yourself in, in a new light and to say, okay, let me think about myself in this season as a gardener and then answer the question, where is he inviting me to be at work in my own life cultivating things that I've been ignoring? Where have you been letting some weeds grow 
Where are there thorns that need to be torn out so that instead of choking out the good things that God wants to bring into being, there are good things which can grow there? Which parts of your life, which relationships that, that you've been given need some watering? Uh, where are you being called right now to begin cultivating? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure what you think about all this, here, tr- try this on for a moment. Imagine that maybe the reason that life has been so meandering and disappointing and so unfulfilling is that you've not yet awakened to the place that you actually were created to be, which is right there beside God at work in the world. In your profession, whatever it is, in, in your school, wherever you go, with your friends, the ones that God has put in your life, maybe you're sitting beside some of them right now, or with your children, or with your spouse, most certainly and most definitely with God. In these weeks ahead of us, we're going to see together how this opening story of the garden plays itself out in the way that we're given to understand ourselves and the God who invites us to awaken to true life. We'll see how the garden figures prominently in the whole story that the Bible tells. And what we'll do together is follow the path so that we learn to become the kinds of cultivators that God wants us to be and has invited us to be and has gifted us to be. And that's going to be true for you individually. I hope that your heart is feeling pulled toward a new step in paying attention to how to be at work slowly and steadily. I'll teach you an awful lot about what I learned from gardening, from watching Michelle garden. (laughs) I will. And these lessons will be good. We'll see how God looks at his people as something to grow and to bear fruit and learn lessons from that. We'll see how Jesus invites his disciples to be attached to him like branches to a vine that will grow. We'll see how so many of the really important things which happen in the New Testament take place in a garden. Some of the hardest things and some of the most joyful things. And we'll also see how at the end there's a garden with a tree growing in it again. And this time, this is so beautiful. Everyone can eat from it. Everyone in the whole world. I, I hope that God will use this time that we spend this morning mostly to inspire you and to get you started. And then in the weeks ahead, that together you'll join with me and we'll go on this exploration and we'll see that the gardener, who is the king, has invited us to have a royal hand in what happens in the world. Now let's pray and ask that God will already begin growing good things in us. God, we thank you so much for the time to gather together around your word so that we can hear the truth. We thank you that in the beginning we learn that you alone are the creator of all the worlds and that because you decided to, you've created us in your image. We thank you for the insight that comes from the truth of of your creation that it's because of our taking the wrong place that things are so broken. We thank you also that in Christ you've decided to come to us to bring us back to the place where we can be where you intended us to be. God, each and every day we want to receive the invitation to be at work with you in this world like gardeners. We ask that this morning and in the days ahead you teach us and that we would grow and you would be growing new things in us individually and then through us as a church altogether. We want to bear good fruit in the world and we ask you to help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.